Let's pray. Father, in your mercy, um, in your grace and in your kindness, would you open up our eyes and our ears and our minds, as well as our hearts this morning, that we might hear from you, we might see you, we might know you in a deeper way. Holy Spirit, come. Fill us to overflowing. Guide our path. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Uh, well, you made it to church. Good job. Any of you that were single dadding, this is a huge feat. So good job. Um, last week, we started looking at my favorite 50 verses in the Gospels. Those 50 verses cover what I think are the most important uh, things for us to understand about Jesus outside of his death, burial, and his resurrection. Principally, that he is in control over and he is Lord over nature, demons, disease, and death. These four realms represent what I think for us just about everything that we will face in life as it relates to threats. And if Jesus is bigger than has authority over, is in control of the natural, that was last week, the supernatural that we'll see this week, and the mortal, disease and death, next week, then he certainly should have authority in our day-to-day lives. This morning, Jesus is going on a short-term mission trip across the pond where he's going to save a man from evil, he's going to push back the darkness Then he's going to commission an evangelist who will become a beacon of light and set up an outpost for the gospel, which ends up continuing to push back darkness and allow women and men and children to experience Jesus' freedom in some really big ways. So that's where we're going. Uh, Turn with me to Mark chapter 5. We're in verse 1. Then they, Jesus and the disciples on the boat, they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. Last week, I said that the place that they were heading to, that got interrupted by this great storm, that it was super important, and now they are here, literally, probably right about there, where we can see. This place on the other side, it's, it's the region of the Gerasenes, and it's likely in reference to a town whose name is preserved in modern-day Kersey. There are clo- uh, caves really close by to that vantage point. This is most probably the exact spot on the map where all of this transpired. But this is not the most important detail. Where, they, uh, where their boat hit the shore is not as important as what was happening uh, socio-politically. Uh, Gosh, I just rolled out, didn't it? It's not as important as the socio-political context. There it is of the area. Because verse 20 at the end says that all that's happened to this man that we're about to meet, um, that he went and he testified to the Decapolis. That's this region. This was a league of free Greek cities, originally numbering 10 Decapolis, this other side. It was a center of Hellenistic and Roman culture in a region which was otherwise very Jewish. Here's the thing. If you were a good Jewish boy, you wouldn't be caught dead over there. In fact, 
Rabbinic tradition said that if you even said the name of that region, you were unclean for seven days. So don't say Decapolis. So what we need to see is that this is a huge departure from where Jesus has been doing ministry. There's no synagogues here. There's no Pharisees, no religious elite. This is burnt orange in College Station. This is Baptists at a whiskey and dancing convention, okay? These things just don't happen. The disciples are definitely not feeling this trip. And my guess is even before the storm hits, their stomach is in knots because they know exactly where Jesus is taking them. Verse 2. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit, for he lived among the tombs. And no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched them apart. He broke the shackles in pieces, and no one had the strength to subdue him. Verse 5, night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out, and he was cutting himself with stones. Immediately, the boat and her crew pull up to the shore, and a demon-possessed man came straight to them. The disciples are probably like, seriously? Like, we just went through this horrendous storm where we were terrified, and now... Like, as soon as we show up, we knew we weren't going to be in Kansas anymore, but as soon as we show up, the first person we meet is demon-possessed. Why has everything got to be so adventurous with Jesus? There's a lot of details here, and each one is important, so I want to go through each one by one. Number one, Demon Danny has seen Jesus far off, and he makes a beeline to a point of his Entry. I think that's really curious. Number two, Danny is listed as a man. This is not some disembodied spirit that's wisping around. He is a real man with a real mother and a real father, and he was with an unclean spirit. So the translation is that he is possessed by a demon. He's demon-possessed. Demon Danny lived among the tombs. This is the place where dead bodies were stored. It's not exactly a clean place to live, and it's also very unkosher. Jewish people don't do dead bodies. Number four, no one could bind him anymore. Apparently, people had thought this man was mad, and so they did what was the norm in their day. They would just chain him up. They locked him up because they were scared. They thought he was mad that something was terribly off. They were scared for their own safety. It's possible that they had him chained up closer to town because remember, they probably knew this guy. In fact, they did know this guy, as we'll see later. But number five, this is the fifth thing here. He was so strong that no one could subdue him. He broke out of chains. He broke out of shackles. So here's the thing. He was either very, very strong because he was a CrossFit champion, or the demon within him was making him have superhuman strength. I've witnessed this thing before, and it's very real. So the men drove him away to the tombs 
to these outside places, probably with torches and pitchforks, actually. How's he going to get a guy like that to go and do something else? Number six, night and day, our guy is roaming amongst the tombs, remember dead bodies, and mountains, these far-off places, super lonely and dangerous, and he is crying out in agony. This guy is in pain. And the last thing is that that agony and that pain, that torment culminates in self-harm by taking sharp stones and cutting himself. Night and day, he's crying out. He's being tortured, and he's hurting himself. Boiled down, demonic possession is to distort and to destroy the image of God in man. They are hell-bent on destruction, John 10.10, for the thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. 1 Peter 5.8, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to what? To devour, to destroy. Interestingly, we will see a similar destruction with the herd of swine. But first, some great Christology. Look at this, verse 6. And when Danny, when he sees Jesus from afar, he ran and he fell down before him and crying out with a loud voice, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you, I beg you, by God, do not torment me. For he was telling him already, come out of him, you unclean spirit. So the demon sees Jesus far off He runs straight to him as if reporting for duty, and then he falls before his feet. The Greek word here is proskuneo, which which can mean worship. More than likely here, it means submission to a higher authority. This demon who had completely overpowered Danny is now prostrate before the true king. Can you see it? It's incredible. For time, I just want to remind us that demons know who Jesus is. In fact, some of the highest Christology in the book of Mark comes from demons. Chapter 1, Holy One of God. Chapter 3, You are the Son of God, and now, Son of the Most High God. I adjure you, by God, don't torment me. Many in the world today consider themselves Christians, but they'll deny things like we said in the Nicene Creed. They'll deny his divinity. The demons know that's really bad theology. So pro tip, if you're going to be a God follower, have better theology than demons. Just saying, okay? Now, verse 9, Jesus asks him, what is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged them earnestly not to send them out of the country. Osborne was really helpful uh, this week. He said it's possible that the name Legion is meant to picture the demons occupying this man like Rome was occupying Palestine, meaning something is here that should not be. Also, employing Legion as a moniker would evoke large numbers organization, relentless strength, the image of a hostile army bent on destruction. Fun fact, a Roman legion consisted of 6,000 foot soldiers, 
120 horsemen and other support staff. I highly doubt there were 6,129 demons residing within Danny, but here's what we know. There is a host of evil spirits that were lurking behind this poor man's eyes. And they had been terrorizing him day and night for quite some time. Verse 11. Now, a herd of great pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they, the demons, however many there were, they said, send us into the pigs, let us enter them. And so Jesus gave them permission And the unclean spirits came out, and they entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea, and they drowned there. What's with the pigs? Seriously, like, why? What's Jesus doing? Why do the demons request to go into the pigs? And then number two, why does Jesus allow it? Probably the the biggest two things that we are curious about when we read this passage. So I want to address each one in turn. Why do the demons request to go into the herd of swine? I think it's because they know that their time inhabiting Danny is coming to a swift end. And demons apparently prefer to live inside of mammals. They like to be embodied so that they can animate those mammals. And I don't know how that helps them or if it's more comfortable, probably warmer. I don't know. Who knows, right? That wasn't actually meant to be a joke, but it is kind of funny now that I say it. Um, they, they also know that Jesus could send them to places like the desert, uninhabited mountains, the sea, the ends of the earth. In Luke's account, they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss, the sea. Rather than be hurled down to the chains of darkness, 2 Peter chapter 2, to await their final judgment, they plead with Jesus to send them to an alternate site. Pigs. It's not exactly a high on the hog office, but that was meant as a joke and it was terrible. And I recognize that, but I had to say it, okay? But better than the confines of the abyss where they would await their final judgment. So that's why the demons asked to go into the pigs. It's either there or they have to await their final judgment somewhere else. Okay, so why does Jesus allow it? Is he pulling a kosher card? Is he shaming the Gentiles? Is he pushing back against empire? There's a bit of speculation and debate amongst scholars, and they are all educated guesses because we don't, the text doesn't really give us anything here. Um, And so as I looked at a bunch of commentaries, I've amalgamated a few of the ones that I think are probably the case. Jesus allows them to enter the swine to highlight beyond question that the true purpose of demons and their leader was the total destruction of their host. I think that's a really legitimate reason why. Number two, and I know this one, I, I feel like this is very educated guess. Jesus recognizes that the time of final vanquishment of the fallen angels was not quite yet. But he doesn't allow them to continue to terrorize this dear man in the meantime. So he sends them away. Another option is that the dramatically uh, destructive end of the pigs was powerful testimony 
to the ex-demoniac that he had been fully delivered. Kent Hughes says this, for the rest of his life, he would tell about this with all the relish of an Eastern storyteller. It would never be forgotten. So those are some reasons why Jesus may have allowed this, but again, just educated guesses, and I also don't think it's the main point of the story. It's a subplot. I think the main point is that Jesus has ultimate authority over the supernatural, over these demons, even an entire legion of them, however many that is. And this is really huge because at the time, here's what people know. They know that demons can overpower humans. Fact. And now this man Jesus shows up, and he has authority over the demons that have authority over and power over the humans. Not only that, but the demons come and they bow down to him, and they call him, they, they use his royal name. This is huge. Ironically, as you know, the rest of the story, the demon's request not to go into the abyss turns out that they are in the abyss, the abyss. They get disembodied from these mammals, for the herd, numbering about 2,000, rush down that steep bank that we saw earlier, and they drown in the sea. Now, verse 14, the herdsmen, they fled and they told it in the city and the country And the people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus, and they saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed, and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. Really important. And they begged Jesus to depart from their region. So there's three movements here. The pig herders, they get spooked by the spooked pigs. They run into the cities in the countryside, and they're telling everyone what they had just witnessed. With the result that a bunch of people came with them to come see this spectacle. There were no more any little piggies at the market. Instead, they're floating in the water, but they're not like swimming, okay? They're just, they're not alive. They're not alive anymore. The second movement is that all of those that came to see the train wreck They found this guy that they used to know, that they went to market with, that they went to grade school with, or whatever you do in the Decapolis, and they see him clothed, pretty important. Most important, they see him as he truly is. He's in his right mind again. He's totally different because a true miracle has just occurred. It's incredible. But wait, there's more. They begged Jesus to just leave. Why would they do that? What he had just done for Danny was incredible. He had changed his life forever, given him the greatest gift. This man that everyone knows is violent, crazy, scars everywhere, he's violent. Now he's sitting upright, he's in Bible study with Jesus and the disciples. Well, they ask Jesus to leave for fear that other things would be destroyed, primarily their economic engines. Swine was a huge part of the GDP of that region. 
And a lot of people just lost a ton of money. So what we see is that the people of that region care more about their checkbooks than the welfare of their fellow humans. Even though he'd just been freed from torture, what they're thinking about is their checkbooks. Verse 18. As Jesus was getting into the boat, this man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might go with him. And he did not permit him, but instead said, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy upon you. So he did. He went away. He began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and everyone marveled. Of course, demons, Danny Sands' demons wants to go with Jesus. He doesn't have friends anymore. He doesn't have a job. He doesn't have a bank account, by the way. He doesn't have a home. And the kindest man he's ever met is right before him. And he's probably been with him for a couple of hours just receiving the goodness of the Lord. He's gone from darkness to light, torture to relief. But Jesus says, no, you can't come with me. You cannot come with me. Instead, I want you to go back home. I want you to tell your friends just how much the Lord has done for you. And without complaint or question, verse 20, Danny went away and he began to proclaim in the Decapolis just how much Jesus had done for him with the result that everyone was amazed. And then Jesus and his disciples, they get back into that boat and they go back to the right side of the lake, the non-Gentile side, and they don't come back for quite a while. But do you know when they do? It's in chapter eight, listen to this. During those days, another large crowd came. They gathered Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people, for they have already been with me three days and they have nothing to eat. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. Skipping forward to verse eight. And they ate and they were satisfied and they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full, completion. And there were about 4,000 people. The geography is very important here. This is the Decapolis. There are no synagogues. There is no worship of the one true God happening here. And this untrained, formerly naked, hell-raising, demon-possessed man simply obeys Jesus and he went and told people what God had done for him. And then sometime later, Jesus comes back to this very un-Jewish, un-God-fearing place, and thousands of people were waiting for him. Not only that, but they stayed with him for three days to receive his instruction in the goodness of God. Do you see it? Further, check this out. There's, there's pretty good evidence that the future bishop of Hippos, which was right there, um, He's the one who actually wrote down the Nicene Creed. 
What? From the Decapolis, where there was no witness, the very first evangelist was Danny. Danny with the legion of demons. So Jesus goes on this short-term mission trip across the lake. He saves a man from evil. He pushes back the darkness. Then he commissions Danny to be the first evangelist there who becomes a beacon of light and he sets up an outpost for the gospel, which ended up continuing to push back the darkness and offer freedom in Jesus' name to the children and the women and the men of that region for centuries. The very same people who were so upset about losing their livelihood were now the ones with opportunity to receive eternal life. Jesus is Lord over the supernatural. And the word of our testimony, listen up, church. The word of our testimony pushes back the darkness. And it can lead to eternal impact beyond our wildest kingdom dreams. Let's pray. Jesus, you are over all. You are the most high. You are the true king. You created everything, and in you, everything has its being. God, thank you for this story. Lord, thank you for that dear man who you rescued on that shore. God, thank you for expelling those many demons from his body and his heart and his mind. And God, thank you that he just simply obeyed and he went and he told his friends and his family and anyone who would listen what the Lord God had done for him. God, thank you for a rich heritage from that place. Lord, thank you for the saints over the past 2,000 years who have stayed true to that message. And God, I pray that you would allow us to partner with you, that by the word of our testimony, by just simply sharing what you have done for us, Lord, that you would push back darkness. You would rescue, not because of us, Lord, but because of you, your power. You have the authority. You're the king. Jesus, you are Lord over all. And it's in your holy and magnificent name that we pray. Amen.